potential and possibilities, discussions with fascinating people, designing a better tomorrow for all of us. I'm your host, Ira Pastor. Welcome everybody again to another episode of our show, bringing you another really fascinating guest today uh, who's involved in creating a better tomorrow for many people out there. Um, today we have the honor of being joined by Dr. Renee Dehan, who currently is the Vice President of Science and Artificial Intelligence at Inside tracker. Uh, and she's involved in leading a science team that ultimately builds and helps mine the world's largest data set of blood, DNA, fitness tracking, and phenotypic data from healthy people, ultimately to create evidence-based solutions uh, for customers that are simple, that are clear, and ultimately actionable. Uh, Dr. Dehan spent her career working uh, in this precision medicine and personalized uh, nutrition domain as she previously served as the VP of Computational Biology and Translational Informatics at Quartz Bio, uh, also as the VP of Biology and Bioinformatics at Patients Like Me, uh, which is the world's largest uh, integrative community of uh, health management uh, and real-world data uh, platform. Uh, at Patients Like Me, uh, Dr. Dehan was responsible for uh, data, knowledge engineering, uh, artificial intelligence, and machine learning, and ultimately translational biology functions, uh, helping to drive uh, infrastructure and consumer and business product development. Uh, she was the principal investigator uh, for the digital Me Ignite program, which was involved in collecting longitudinal blood uh, and patient-gathered health data from over 5,000 at-home site visits uh, from over 2,000 participants and was able to generate a couple million data points uh, through that program. Uh, she's invo been involved in designing and then cross-functionally uh, implementing a variety of first-generation uh, research platforms, uh, again, capable of integrating both survey data as well as omics data uh, for a variety of biomarker analysis um, and, and really you know been involved in this fascinating intersection of you know what we refer to as the omics bringing together proteomics methylomics metabolomics and a range of other important areas of uh, biomedical data to as, as you say really perform actionable insights uh, she has uh, her PhD in molecular and cell biology from uh, University of California Berkeley she did her bachelor's in bioengineering down the street here at University of Pennsylvania. And uh, we're lucky to have her with us today. Um, Dr. Renee Dehan, thanks so much for taking the time to join us on the show. Wow, and thank you very much for having me. Um, I am absolutely honored to be one of your many esteemed guests uh, that I have seen. <laughs> so thank you. 
Yeah. Well, I I really appreciate you taking the time to to come talk to us today about everything you have going on because it really is a very exciting segment of of everything that's happening in biotech as we're on the the, the cusp of 2023 here. Um, I, I would love to start off though, you know, as we typically do, by handing you the the floor for a little bit just uh, to talk a little bit more about you, so we can get to know you a little bit beyond the bio that I just read, a little bit you know, about your background, everything from where you grew up, the development of some of these intellectual interests uh, in bioengineering and in molecular cell biology, and a little bit of those early days of your career journey. I think that'd be a, a great way to start things off. Cool. Awesome. Um, well, I am currently located in Cambridge. I was born in the Boston area in Newton. So, um, But as you mentioned, I went off to college in Pennsylvania um, go Quakers. And uh, that's where I, I did end up majoring in bioengineering. And, and I was just thinking about this the other day. Um, I still regret, I, I think I should have double majored in biology and computer science, because I think ultimately that that ended up being, you know, kind of what I do. Um, but as I'm sure is the same for you and many of the folks in our field is, you know, you're just sort of born a nerd and absolutely curious about anything. Um, and, you know, I was thinking the other day too, I was like, why am I not a quantum biologist? Like that's where <laughs> the action is. I mean, but I can, I can literally be interested in most things because everything is absolutely fascinating. Um, and the majority of my industry work has been focused on networks and that's, yeah. that's, we're living in a social network. Um, but we are always constantly in harmony with our environments, whether that's, you know, a cell in a greater tissue or whether it's like a person in an office building, it's just, you know, I think about these inter interdependencies a lot, but, um, I loved biology, so I did end up majoring in bioengineering, which at the time, which was the late 90s, I would say that bioengineering at the undergraduate level was like um, a sampler platter of engineering. So you just really get a little from columns A, B, C, D, and E. Um, and at the same time, I was working in a worm lab doing worm genetics with Elizabeth Bucher, and I loved it. You know, I really, I had a great time. Um, and I wanted to continue that laboratory work. So uh, that's why I spent you know, really the next seven years between a tech position and graduate school, very focused on molecular biology uh, and cell biology, which is funny because I actually have not taken very many molecular cell biology classes. Um, but during that period of time was kind of the genomics, early genomics revolution, right? With DNA sequencing and microarrays came on the scene. And um, I remember seeing experiments that people were doing and they would measure, all of a sudden you could just measure a thousand things in one experiment, right? And they would pick maybe two of the most interesting things to them and they would just deeply characterize those in an experiment. And I just wanted to characterize the other, you know, 998 interesting things that were there as well. Um, so I'd say that's what really ended up leading me into where I've spent the majority of my industry career, which is, which is, I think could be fairly um, described as computational biology, which is a hugely, you know, multidisciplinary field where you need to have subject matter expertise in 
you know, the development and implementation of different methods that you apply to large scale data sets, but you also have to have real subject matter expertise in biology as well. I feel like that's almost like the overlooked part um, in in informat- bioinformatics and computational biology is everybody thinks it's like very math intensive, but it, you know, you need that subject matter expertise to understand the myriad of edge cases that exist out there that you always have to account for. So um, that's how I moved through kind of the educational component of, mm-hmm. of my life and into into industry. Excellent. Excellent. Yeah, it's um, I really enjoy sort of the uh, the convergent uh, sort of bridge themes here. And when I have guests like you that, you know, as you were saying, you know, here's biology, exciting, computer science, exciting. But when you put them together, you know, the the synergies that pop out are just, you know, uh, really have the potential to change, change a lot of what's happening. And, um, you know, I, Renee, I, I really, you know, I, I enjoy, um, you know, when I do these shows, sort of pre- going into the uh, the sort of the peer reviewed literature and taking a little journey to see sort of where you've been after uh, you know you came out of university, um, you know what I'll call sort of pre- in this case pre inside tracker time, and you know clearly uh, you know what I ran into, you know uh, a highlights, you know why you're so perfect at what you're doing now, and we'll get into that in a little bit. But some of what I ran into was just so uh, ahead of its time in the sense that, you know, I pulled up papers where you were um, you know, basically uh, looking at, say, pharmacogenomics in this in this particular case of uh, looking at anti-TNF therapy and rheumatoid arthritis and trying to understand, you know, sort of the cohort of patients that was not responding to these really novel cutting edge biologics. Another area that you published several papers on you it called different things at one point you you refer to it as 21st century toxicology uh another uh you, you call it toxopanomics which was it i i don't i know sort of the term toxicogenomics i was like yeah but this is much more than that where you know you i think actually you were working for a doing some research for a tobacco company at the time but really looking at things like uh, you know across the spectrum of of dna damage cell death uh, cell senescence um and, and really understanding sort of the complexity uh, of, of what goes on in that particular case you know uh, cellular damage from you know certain metabolites and so forth Talk a little bit about this era, the sort of this Dr. Dehan era, because I think what you're doing here, obviously, <laughs> it makes us understand why you're doing what you're doing now in Inside Tracker. But take us through a little bit of this period, if you would. Yeah, awesome. I I love that. I love that you picked up on those, you know, those papers in particular, um, and I would say, you know, both both of that exploration all started at this company called Genstruct, which later branded as Salventa. And I yep. spent uh, the decade after graduate school there. Um, and, you know, interestingly, it was there where I met uh, Gil Blander, who went on to found uh, Inside Tracker and uh, the my predecessor in this position, Melena George. I met her there as well. Um, also Dexter Pratt, who mm-hmm. I think... I don't know if he would technically be called, I, I consider him, you know, really, he was the architect of the the platform that we built um, at Salventa uh, to actually analyze all of this omics data. And, and again, this was back in 2006 and microarrays were all the rage. RNA-seq wasn't really here yet, but yes. what Salventa had developed, um, Genstruck back then, was a really beautiful, elegant platform whereby 
you could take the thousands of measurements that you might get from an RNA experiment um, and make inferences, causal inferences to say, what happened to cause this pattern of gene expression that I see, yep. right? So essentially you might say in the case of TNF, um, which is the target of many drugs in rheumatoid arthritis, but it's, you know, it's essentially the growth factor category. It's very yep. pleiotropic. You can put it on cells and you can do a microarray experiment or an RNA-seq experiment and really get a signature for RNA expression. And what the platform that, that we had built and allowed you to do was really make some informed guesses about what were the different molecular players that occurred in between that cell engaging with this you know, potential drug target and then down very downstream um, where you see signatures in gene expression. So what this allowed us to do is to take a lot of published information that was out there and assemble that all together in one causal network knowledge assembly model. And um, Dexter Pratt was our head of, of knowledge modeling. And what I learned about there was the ability to, to take decades worth of research, extract the most salient results from those research papers, mm -hmm. transform that into a computable machine readable format, and then put it all together, just like we do with databases or like a relational database. We were doing that with results, with, mm -hmm. with knowledge. So, you know, data might be that um, my LDL cholesterol level is 134. Right. And, but in inference or knowledge might be that individuals with elevated LDL tend to have a higher risk of biocardium infarcts over the next five years or whatever it is, right? That's the data is the measurement itself, but the knowledge is like, what do you do? What do you do with that information? What, what can you say about it? It has a lot of context. And so we were building knowledge bases, but we were using those knowledge bases to help us understand what these large scale data sets were telling us. Because yeah. when you when you measure a thousand things in an experiment, what you can't do is just mentally go through every single gene in the experiment and say, oh, is it up or down? What does this mean? Let me Google every single paper there is about LDL and heart disease. And right, you right. know, we can only keep so much in our tiny human brains. So um, that's where I really learned how to teach computers how to think like biologists. And I mean, we're far from being able to really do that, right? I, we're still smarter than the computers. Um, but um, that's where we started. What is it like? What does it mean to right. interpret this data? What do we have to do? And, and how can we create a system that does that for us? Um, so anyway, the two papers that, that you, you mentioned were, were awesome and they were very different in that one I'd say was very knowledge driven and another one was very data driven, but both were this mix of knowledge and data. And the, the first one, the work that we did with the tobacco company, it was Philip Morris. Um, and this was work that was um, led by Julia Hong and Manuel Peitsch at yep. Philip Morris. Um, yeah, and and they really, we worked together on a very large strategy that they had in order to evaluate the biological impact of products, right, for systems toxicology purposes. Mm -hmm. And what they wanted to do was essentially characterize 
not only what the overall impact of a product might be, but what molecularly was the impact of that given product. So you could compare, say, a standard reference cigarette uh, against a, a vaping mechanism, right? And say, okay, well, overall, how many genes does this perturb? And mm -hmm. then, but then take it a step further and say, okay, well, specifically in terms of the autophagy pathway or the cell senescence pathway or the DNA damage pathways, which genes do we think are, you know, kind of perturbing those pathways and in which direction do we think those pathways are going? So this was part of a very large scale strategy whereby we were building knowledge models like these networks like you might see in a keg diagram or like figure six of a review um these kind of signaling uh these signaling molecule pathways so we would build these networks that describe everything that we knew about senescence in lung cells or everything we knew about senescence in heart cells um and then we would augment those models with experiments that were in relevant cell types and things like that and then we would test them with kind of a, obviously a held out uh, data set and say, okay, well, how much does this, how much of all the data that do we see in this experiment where they, you know, activated a senescent pathway, how much of that is actually covered by the model that we built um, with the overall goal of being able to use that model to then compare what is the impact of product one, two, three, four, five on senescence. Um, yep. But that was part of a much larger uh, network biology schema. And so it was, um, you know, I think I was, I was talking to somebody the other day about digital twins. Uh, yep. It was very much a digital twin, like very, very much a digital twin where you build something using knowledge, you augment it over and over again using data. It kind of learns from the data that you feed into the system. The model is improved, but then you use that model to then, you know, test something that you can't test necessarily in a real world population, which we can. I mean, we'll know the answer in 20 years, but the goal was to try to create more of an in silico approach or yep. a lab-based approach to start to tease out what was going on before the 20-year mark. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I thought that one specifically extremely elegant. It's, I mean, I'm going to come back to it a little later on when we get into sort of uh, nutrigenomics or nutropanomics, I guess we, we can, but you know, if we substitute, you know, the tobacco for X, Y, yeah. and Z interventions. Um, but yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll come back to that. But I, I really thought that was extremely elegant. I just, I, again, I wanted to lay the groundwork for people listening and, 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 uh, and watching to sort of everything you were doing beforehand and, and, and to the audience, uh, go out and, you know, go into PubMed and, and check out Dr. Dehan's publications because they are pretty, uh, pretty cool. Um, Let's okay. So let's segue now to Inside Tracker. You know, you have the role of vice president of both science and artificial intelligence, and um, you know, obviously a uh, a very broad spectrum of programs here. Um, I sort of you could sort of walk us through just a little bit about the background of the company. I mentioned you know a little bit about its founding, um, and, and a little bit about if if you would, I mean. Because they see sort of, you know, the advertisements and, and, I, and I downloaded one of the white papers and we'll get to the longevity in a little bit. Um, a little bit about sort of where all this amazing data comes from nowadays, because obviously thinking out there to the, the population of, of everybody in, in the world, you know, obviously there's certain people out there like I guess my my father and mother-in-law that may have one set, you know, they go to the doctor and they have the other blood test. There may be someone like me who's a little more of a biohacker. And then there's, you know, 
sort of are the advanced biohacking folks. And we all may have different sets of data, uh, different types of data. Talk a little bit about sort of how all that feeds into the Inside Tracker system today. I'd love to understand a little more how it all works. Sure, and I I will do the best that I can um, to give you some of some of the history. I I have of course known about Inside Tracker since its inception, mm-hmm. um, 12, 14 years ago, really quite quite some time. Um, and of course, Gil and I worked together back in the Genstruck days, and mm-hmm. you know he left and then went on to find, found Inside Tracker. So I had definitely you know he and I would always catch up, you know, at least once a year um, and always had a really good eye on it. And then when I actually went to patients like me, I think in a way, conceptually, uh, the two companies were doing something very similar at heart, although very different. Inside Tracker is exclusively um, at this time focused on well individuals um, yep. in that um you know, there's no recommendations about drugs that you might want to take or anything like sure. that. But really what the what the product is, is you come in, we measure things about you, right? And these measurements can come from blood-based measurements. Um, now we have the ability to also incorporate physio trackers. Uh, so anything that you might get from a wearable, um, as well as DNA. And then, of course, we do ask individuals questions about themselves. So we'll say user-generated health data. Um, so all of that kind of makes up your health profile at a given point in time. Okay. And then that is coupled with the you know AI part of the system. And the AI part really kind of has two, I call it like two halves of the brain. I call it like the, the observer half and the sage half. And if we just start with the sage half, that's really where Inside Tracker was started, where they were they curated um, recommendations for lifestyle interventions. And so this is where the science part comes in. A lifestyle-based intervention in, in this case would be um, a nutritional intervention, a supplement, mm-hmm. an exercise intervention, a meditation type of wellness intervention, but something where you didn't need a prescription and you could really kind of take control all on your own. You don't need anybody's permission or anything like that. Um, And those two elements were coupled, the measurement of, of who you are and what your health state is right now together with recommendations that are science-backed and made by experts. And so, you know, if we take the example of LDL, Um, maybe somebody with a profile of elevated LDL would be interested in taking some of these recommendations. And so the scientists at Inside Tracker literally did meta-analyses for things that may improve your LDL for, Mm -hmm. let's say, maybe women between 40 and 50 uh, with an elevated LDL of X to Y, right? And so they would read all of these articles about, okay, well, what is the influence of consuming flax meal on LDL? And, right. you know, if there was a sufficient amount of evidence that suggested that there might be a benefit here and the the elegance with which the system was built, uh, that the scientists do these um, meta-analyses and they curate all of this information is, I mean, it's just, it's, it's outstanding. It is beautiful. It is part of the reason why I came here. Um, but, you know, they take into account, of course, how many people were in the study, 
Um, what did the study look like? What was the intervention exactly? How long was the intervention for? What was the outcome? Was the outcome statistically significant? What was what journal was it published in? And then overall, they might look and say, okay, out of all of the papers that looked at LDL and flax mail, how many of them had a positive result or a negative result? Or um, it was inconclusive and they couldn't even say it was either way, right? And then if there is a preponderance of evidence, then they'll say, okay, you know, it looks like flax meal for some people may make really move the needle here. So that is something that could be then pushed to the product. So just imagine that on a grand scale for many different biomarkers yep. and for many different types of lifestyle interventions. And really that's what the the knowledge driven, I call it the sage part of the platform is, is you can take your biomarkers and then filter that through all of these, you know, lifestyle based recommendations that really have been investigated um, by a bunch of people sitting in a room and reading papers and curating them manually. Um, so there's the other element of the platform too, which I would call the observer part. And that's more the data driven part. And that might be something like, oh, okay, so it's really interesting. You, um, well, how about this example? This is your LDL level. What's everybody mm -hmm. else's LDL level across right. this population? Like, are, are you, how are you doing, Renee, for somebody with your characteristics? Yep. Um, or, huh, wow, you've really been exercising for quite a bit. Like, have we actually seen your resting heart rate go down? Let, let's see. Um, so these are the types of things that we're working on now, more analytics focused uh, mm -hmm. to bring more of a data-driven element into, um, into the product. Excellent. I, uh, as a, I, I don't know if I got an email or what, what, maybe I just because I was I was going through the site, but I, I downloaded the um, uh, the longevity biomarkers uh, white paper uh, that that's available for anyone that uh, that wants it. Um, and you know, I I went back to my most recent uh, doctor visit, so uh, my CRP, HbA one C, and LDL were fine. My triglycerides a little high. My vitamin D low. Um, and and here we have sort of this initial set of longevity biomarkers, and as you were just saying, right? There's uh, uh, potentially lots of them out there. You you got some great thought leaders in terms of Lenny Granti, you got Davis Sinclair, and others. Um, talk a little bit about longevity. I mean, this is a very hot topic for us, and not just sort of longevity, but sort of this whole concept of this burgeoning concept of health span. Um, and then you know. Clearly, well, again, sort of going back to your the previous work that I pointed out in terms of the toxopanomics, um, each of those categories, when you think about DNA damage and autophagy and, and senescence, there's a whole other sort of network of biomarkers behind all that stuff as well. Where do you see uh, this potentially all going? Obviously, there's a there's a lot of knowledge that can be you know using your your tools, your scientific knowledge, but also your AI, and we'll get to that in a bit. Um, Talk a little bit about where you see things going on the, the health span longevity front with these tools. Yeah, that is a great question. And I am going to be a hopefully a good scientist and point out the caveat that I am not a longevity expert. Um, as you have probably seen, I have I've I've actually spent the majority <laughs> of my career in in healthcare, not to say that diseases of aging are, you know, not part of this equation. Um, but you know, compared to Gil or certainly Lenny or Antair or any of those folks. Um, I am trying to 
my best to catch up. Although trust me, I have opinions. Um, <laughs> but in terms of, I mean, I, I love and hate the term health span. I love it because I understand what is meant by it. The mm. reason that I shouldn't say I hate it. I don't hate it at all. What I would, what I really want to do. Um, and I feel like I read a nice piece by, it might've been Matt Caberline about this is mm-hmm. I would really like to turn this into a clinical definition, right? Like let's all decide what, what health span actually means right. because I think we all want to improve it, but we have no, if we don't have a definition of it, we can't measure it. If we can't yeah. measure it, we actually have no idea if we're improving it. I would say though, that directionally we can certainly figure out what is good for us versus bad for us. And in a lot of cases, um, take something like we know that exercise is really good for us. Right. So I don't think I need a clinical definition of health span to tell me that if I do 45 to 90 minutes of zone two training three times a week, good things are going to happen for me. Like great things are going to happen for me, not only in the kind of short acute term, but also, you know, in the preventative long-term, right. I will improve insulin sensitivity. I, you know, will probably, I might lose weight. I will become a more efficient fat burner, all of these types of things. Um, so that's, we think a lot about this and actually currently we are, we're working on different ways to encourage people to create and keep habits that will allow them to improve health span, uh, mm-hmm. or at least do things that we know are good for you and should um, extend health span, right? So we've been thinking a lot about um, what is the smallest, tiniest thing that you could do for yourself today, once a day, yep. once a day, what is that one tiny thing, right? Like it's 10 PM. Have you done that one tiny thing for yourself today? You know, if not like, what is, what is that one tiny thing? It doesn't even have to be that big. Go, you forgot to take your supplement or eat that flax meal or something like that. Can go do that. Go do a, you know, 20 minute walk around the block, get outside for a little bit. Five minutes of meditation doesn't really matter. Pick your favorite thing. Whatever is entry level for you is awesome. Um, so we've been thinking a lot about, a lot about that because I think it's, um, to me, it's interchanged with preventative medicine mm-hmm. uh, in in a big way. Um, and I feel like we've not, as a society, been able to crack preventative medicine. Maybe it's because it's a capitalist society and it's <laughs> it's hard to spend money there. Um, yep. I don't know. But, you know, I am very excited about that. Um, and my hope is that change these changes will lead to increased health span once we are actually able to to quantify what it is. And certainly Inside Tracker is very, very much interested in that. Um, you know, we have an algorithm that is a blood-based interage algorithm right now uh, that'll give you your biological age. Um, and we're looking at ways to, you know, in, in the next version of that, expand it so it can also include, you know, relevant physio markers or maybe even other functional markers that are, you know, relevant from a clinical perspective or have mm-hmm. clinical meaning. Um, that's very important to me, especially coming from the background that I have, which is analyzing a lot of research grade multi-omic data. Yep. Um, it is hard to translate that into 
you know, even I'll say clinical action, even meaning wellness-based types of interventions. So one of the things that I really like very much about Insight Tracker is the things that we are measuring have clinical relevance, right? Um, we know that ApoB, um, which will be measured, um, is tied to cardiac risk, right? Um, we know that HbA1c levels are associated with um, risk of diabetes and right. insulin sensitivity, right? So we know that VO2 max is another great measure of cardiometabolic health. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's not like random obscure protein on a proteomics panel and we don't right. really know what it does or who it binds to. And there's not a 30, 50 year body of research behind it. Um, you know, I can walk into my doctor's office and hand them this sheet of things and they understand uh, yep. what the vast majority of them are. So. Speak, I, I, I totally agree with you about health span, by the way. I, I like the term youth span. Well, at least you know, when I survey sort of the, um, as again, my, my, my mother and father-in-law that are close to 90, they laugh when I say health span. They're, we don't, they're like, no, thanks. We don't want to be a little healthier. We want to be younger, but that, <laughs> that's a totally different thing. But when, when it comes to um, random obscure protein that you were just saying on, on the panel or, or, or biomark, whatever it is. Let's segue a little bit to the AI part of this, because you know, clearly this is another extremely hot area. Um, and, and we've delved into AI beyond healthcare on the show in all different fields. Clearly, uh, with what you're doing, as you say, okay, if you have, you know, one biomarker, fine. If you have, for instance, this uh, longevity bio, these five longevity biomarkers, okay, things get a little more complex. Uh, but clearly, as these weird proteins on the on the panel start pouring in you need yep. the ai tools you need the machine learning talk a little bit about your own experience with you know obviously you know you you have all the, the cellular molecular biology work the ai has come on the scene talk a little bit about your own sort of uh you know getting up to speed process with some of these new tools because they're evolving as we're talking right now and, and a little bit about how you see uh things ultimately you know moving uh towards the as again using these tools for once again development of knowledge and not just you know crunching some data yeah yeah no it's it's it is a great question um and i honestly think in the biomedical space this is broadly i would include pharma biotech um wellness companies all in this Unless it's something like imaging and assisting pathologists with making calls on is this a skin cancer or not, or you know, I think I think just like classic machine learning mm -hmm. is actually quite developed um, for that particular application. I think it's hard. It, it's going to be hard to take all of that omics data and hope to just toss it into a machine learning model and get something reasonable out that is going to be applicable in a real world setting. And the reason why I think that is because we're very good at measuring a lot of things in a few people, right? Yeah. Um, so oftentimes, just from a very practical standpoint, when we have been approached to let's say build a class, we'll take the rheumatoid arthritis 
uh, paper as an example. And, and in this paper, um, what we were trying to do is build a classifier to predict which rheumatoid arthritis patients would respond to anti-TNF therapy versus not um, for many good reasons, like mm -hmm. it's a progressive disease and only 50% of people respond. And then you might just go on another anti-TNF and you may not respond to that one either. And now it's like nine months later. Um, so, you know, in that case, you may be measuring, you may have maybe in our training set, we had 200 individuals and a microarray experiment at the time was like 15 to 20,000 genes. And yep. at that point you have an overtraining problem. Yep. You will absolutely build a classifier that will work. There's no question about it. Um, just because it's, it's the same multiple testing problem as you have in a, like a statistical model. So, um, one of the ways you can solve that problem, of course, is to not throw 15,000 things into the model. And there's a mm -hmm. lot of really great techniques to figure out how to shave that number down to 200 or something that is a reasonable number to use. Um, and always the way in which like I have liked to, and others have liked to approach this problem is to use knowledge, is to use prior knowledge mm -hmm. to help reduce that number of measurements down to something that actually makes a lot of sense. And in that particular paper, what we did was, uh, I'd call it feature compression, where we took those 15,000 things and compressed it down to, I think, 1,500 features. Okay. But each of these features represented a biological signaling molecule. Um, it represented, let's just say, on the order of 50 to a couple of hundred different genes and was really a summary score of the pathway activity of those 50 to 150 genes. So it would be very functionally related. For example, if you wanted to have a use TNF as a feature, then I think we had like 250 different genes that we knew could be regulated by TNF. We knew the direction of TNF regulation, like if you added TNF to cells, would this gene go up or down? And then we were able to say, okay, well, in, you know, you versus me, what do those 250 genes look like? And when you sum them all up, is Iris TNF higher than Renee's or is Renee's TNF higher than Iris? And that's, that's the way that we got from, in that case, 250 down, down to one. Um, so, but we had to use a lot of knowledge in order to, to collect to even be able to do that. So a lot of words, just to say, <laughs> I think that we are getting quite developed at building machine learning pipelines. Mm -hmm. Okay. And you can, you know, use various different programming language to pull in these different pipelines. I, I They will be point and click soon if they're not already. I have no idea where you can build your own machine learning model in an hour. Um, and that is wonderful. But I think the harder part is really the interpretation of that. And the interpretation of that does mean that you need to build knowledge bases. And I think it's um, the knowledge base, for example, that that Inside Tracker uses is all of those papers that all of the dietitians and exercise physiologists um, and subject matter experts had to read and then extract the results from to make a conclusion that was then stored somewhere, right? Mm -hmm. 
So, you know, if we did that meta-analysis for LDL and uh, flax meal, the impact of flax meal on LDL levels, you know, maybe they read 15 papers, maybe only 10 of them were relevant. Um, but those 10, all of the information from that was curated and stored somewhere and it still lives there, even if that happened 10 years ago and it will mm -hmm. still live there 10 years from now. So it's not like Renee spent the weekend doing a meta-analysis. I wrote down my conclusion and then sure. I walked away and it's gone. So I think it's just very important that we have ways of harnessing decades of research and like billions of research dollars. Like how do we make that useful? It's just sitting out there in PubMed. Right. But but I think so. I think the answer is not just data and math. Um, I think that interpretation comes from priors and priors live in that colossal body of published literature. And yep. I think the people that are going after that published literature and trying to make it useful um, are going to be a step ahead of the game because you don't mm -hmm. hear very much about that type of AI. It's still artificial intelligence. It's right. more in the general AI category, right? It's expert knowledge systems. It's knowledge representation and reasoning. It's recommendation engines. All of that is artificial intelligence. Yep. It's just not machine learning. Um, and so I think the folks that are really kind of working at the nexus of that have kind of figured it out and they're taking they're taking the next step. I mean, you come from a developmental background, right? Which I think is awesome, right? Like I I think that like that voice, I want to hear more of that voice in this world. Um, but I think about self-fates and how complex that is, you know, that tree of decisions that an organism is making as it as it develops. Um who can hold all of that in their heads? Like that yeah. is a knowledge network. Just that fate, you know, that yeah. whole model of fate is a knowledge network. Absolutely. So if that can be used with data, maybe it can inform what's happening with your data intelligently. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's a, it's a very elegant way to look at it. Yeah, no, it's a, it's spot on actually. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, that's, no, I, I, uh, I, I appreciate that perspective. Right. Um, a couple um, a couple months ago, you were interviewed um, in uh, for this article in uh, in Nutra Ingredients uh, magazine, um, and you had some really interesting uh, quotes in there, uh, both on the themes of as you're saying, the complexity of, of biology, uh, but also personalization. Uh, you know, talking about you know what. I think we we all do. These sort of people that have hung out in this industry long enough, you know, you would love to see at some point uh, a move away from sort of the one size fits all single magic bullet approach that has been, you know, it's it, it's yielded great blockbuster drugs uh, and made a handful of companies extremely rich. But at the end of the day, we are an extremely diverse, complex uh, set of folks out here. Um, yeah, and, and whether we're talking about pharmacogenomics or nutrigenomics or whatever, you know, sort of the, the omics thing is at the end of the day. Where do you think all this is? I mean, where would you like to see this all go in five, 10 years? What would you ultimately like to see sort of 
inside tracker, you know, 10.0 at, at some point be able to do, whether it is, you know, uh, you know, parsing out, you know, specific things in terms of, uh, you know, repurposing of drugs or, you know, specific uh, diet insights and, you know, you know, I should eat more cucumbers, you should eat more asparagus and, and so forth and so on. Because it really goes in so many directions. Talk a little bit about what you see uh, in the years to come with some of these tools. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and I can definitely tell you what what I would want if I personally had my had my druthers, especially with respect to with respect to Inside Tracker. Um, I mean, I think, like you said, we've been in the field a long time. We know what personalized medicine means. We've even started to do some of it. Um, but that is that is the really the function of inside trackers platform it's yeah. no different from personalized medicine right if we think about um food or meditation or exercise they're all interventions right yep. so um which is like just it's 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 actually very different uh for me um coming from a health a healthcare background because yep. i can like test this stuff on myself, right? Yes. <laughs> like I am, I mean, I am the, I am the, the candidate person who likes to do these types of things. I, I can try something and then evaluate and see whether it works or not. Yep. Um, so that's the holy grail, because like you said, it's not the same, it's not the same for, for everybody. I can't even conceive of going on a ketogenic diet. I just, I, I, my body rejects high levels of protein. Like I just, I just don't like it. I don't crave it every once in a while when I do, but it's in, I know I should eat more protein and all of this, but it's one of those things where I just know that it's probably not how I was. It is just something in me yeah. that says I need to eat carbs every day Me too. <laughs> or I get a headache <laughs> or I feel faint or, you know, and who knows? I am so far from a dietitian. I it, maybe there's great reasons for this, and I should just try it otherwise. But you know, I think the point is that um, maybe that's my body telling me that I actually need this as a fuel source. Um, so, what I like about Inside Tracker is it you know it can acknowledge something like that. It can acknowledge what my diet is, um, and it can acknowledge where I am today, because it might be very different from where I was two months ago. Two months ago, I ran in a long race and I had my blood done and my, you know, CRP was just through the roof, right? Mm. There was a good reason for it. Right. Um, so maybe at that time, my protein needs were different than where they are right now. Maybe during a period of intense stress where my cortisol is spiking, my recovery needs are different than where they are when I'm, you know, in maybe a more stable period in life. So that's what I, I like is that I, I, in a future state, I want to see the product be able to keep up with where I am on an increasingly rapid pace, right? Mm -hmm. Or at an increased cadence. So it's not just 
every couple months when I get a blood draw. Now we have physio data. So now I can track how my sleep is going every single day. I can, you know, start to understand maybe how my meal timing is influencing my sleep every day. I can start to understand, I can, you know, get, get more rapid feedback. So mm-hmm. in a future state for inside tracker, I am the type of person that I kind of want to be told what to do. Um, I have decision fatigue, right? Like mm-hmm. I, I would love to really be nudged to go to bed at the appropriate time at night. Um, I would love to have food that is nutritious and catered to me just up here without really having to do very much. Um, I would love to be reminded to eat when I need to and reminded not to when I don't because I you know, have like a 1am cheese and crackers problem, Mm. which is recommended by absolutely nobody. But, you know, there, I would love to be cheered on for all the little things that I do better today that I didn't do so hot on yesterday, even Mm -hmm. if it's not eating cheese and crackers at one o'clock in the morning, right? Like that, that's, that's an improvement for me. Sure, may not be your problem, but I want that, like in my dream world, that is, that is the level of personalization, um, that would be amazing. Uh, and you know, of course, with all of that, I should see concomitant changes in these biomarkers that we care so very much about that have, you know, are tied to function. So I should see my lipids decrease. I should see my blood sugar decrease in Mm -hmm. HbA1c. I should be able to maintain, um, good like ferritin iron homeostasis. Um, I should be able to, when I get sick, be able to recover reasonably well because my immune system is robust, right? That's, that's what I want to see. But I also love that we're just able to measure more things now than we used to be able to measure. Right. And Mm -hmm. I can't wait for those omics measurements to trickle their way more into the clinical domain. Um, which by the way, I'm seeing them. I, I just was looking at a test from um, Castle Biosciences for, uh, it It was a diagnostic to look at the metastatic potential of a particular uveal melanoma. Okay. And it was RNA expression based. And I was like, this is so cool, right? Mm-hmm. Like, this is so cool. We were trying to build this stuff like 15 years ago and now it's here and it's like being used by doctors and- you know, people can make real treatment decisions that are, are based on RNA-seq, like awesome. Progress has been made. So how do we do more of that? How do we get that out faster? How do we get like the FDA to keep up with, with the pace of everything? Um, those are more meta questions, but I think for, for longevity and for wellness-based, um, interventions, I mean, the sky is the limit. It's beautiful over here, right? People are just more interested in quantifying themselves than ever. Um, Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, uh, And and obviously, if this is confidential, just tell me we can't talk about that now. But any plans in terms of, uh, you know, um, companion, in this case, companion uh, food products, functional foods, nutraceuticals, anything uh, that we can expect to see from Inside Tracker. Obviously, you know, you, you talked about the flax meal a lot in terms of the LDLs and all that stuff, but 
uh, stuff coming in the future that you know you may pair up the whether it's your own consumer packaged goods to service companion products to the inside tracker um, uh, app or potential partnerships with consumer packaged good companies that maybe synergies there uh, between product and, and app. I think those are amazing questions. Um, I don't think I'm the right person to answer them. I, I don't think it's a confidential thing, but more, more like I'm not. I'm not sure that I'm the right person. Um, we'll do another episode then. Don't worry about it. No. I know. Well, what you know, what I what I will say is that, and this is you know, it's 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 definitely. Um, and actually, I don't know if when you were mentioning the white paper, if you were talking about the one that was in Scientific Reports from 2018, but you know, and. The, the, and during that year, there was a, a paper that was published on the inside tracker data asset. And at that time, we were looking at um, about a thousand individuals that had um, at least two blood draws, right? Because we were mm. looking at longitudinal data over time. And, you know, at this point, we have like, I think almost 20 times that amount of data. Mm -hmm. um, and we are also able to track people's. Um, adherence to a recommendation should they choose to track this information, right? Mm -hmm. So I talk about the flax meal and LDL a lot because I actually have this recommendation and my LDL is in, indeed elevated and I'm trying to get it down with flax meal. Mm -hmm. among I better, other I better try it myself. <laughs> I know. Actually, I I was talking to um, somebody on the team and they were like, just put it on anything. And I'm like, you're right. I put it on pizza. I literally put it on everything. I kind of like it. Um, it doesn't taste like much, but um, little nutty. Yeah. As far as interventions go, I, I mean, this is why I'm actually fascinated by which recommendations do people actually take? Because what's, what's easy for me, I leave now flax meal on my kitchen counter and I dump it on things like that's how I do that. But if the intervention is too onerous, or it takes too much like schlepping, um, right. likely to do it. So I think the behavioral aspect of this is really fascinating. Sure. Yeah. Um, but what I really, you know, what we're looking to do is to update that paper now that the data asset has grown as much as it has and see mm -hmm. like, okay, well, do the original correlations between biomarkers still remain? And now that we can track adherence, can we say something more specific, even in a retrospective fashion? Like, okay, all right, for all the people that did start consuming flax meal, did it work? Did mm -hmm. it work in our population? Did Renee's... LDL actually improve or, or not? Um, how can we contribute to scientific knowledge through exploration of our own data set um, yep. and how people behave with it? So um, one of the things that I would love to be able to do is eventually get to a prospective study where you would be able to say, okay, does this actual intervention of an app work? Yeah. And if this intervention of an app works, can we be very specific and say there are certain recommendations that we make that are rather successful? Are there others that are less successful? Why? I mean, that to me would be incredible. And if I think about being able to really prove that a digital solution like this is has a place in preventative medicine, that's the type of thinking that we need to do. You really want to perform the RCT um, yep. on it. But with that said, like you said before, what do you do about the personalization aspects of it? Um, I always think about this one patient in this 
It was a gynecological cancer that I looked at and everybody in that cohort should have died. And there was this one woman, um, it was five years later and she was still alive. And, Mm. you know, I think the study met its primary endpoint anyway, but nobody was talking about this woman, right? Like you don't come back from the type of cancer that she had and she did. And that to me is wild because I'm like, what was going on with her? All of our eggs should be in that, you know, we should put just as much effort into studying her as the rest of the population, all of the non-responders. But to have such a crazy response in that one individual, what can she teach us about everybody else, right? So what I like about what I mean, what I like about this job and what I like about Inside Tracker is being able to combine both that like large scale global population level research, but also that I want to see the crazy responders. Like I want yep. to go snuffle them out and find what what were you doing? What was your environment like? What's going on with you that we're not capturing that we should be capturing? Like I love both sides of that coin. And I think both are really important for for this, our field as we, as we move forward, because it's not a one size fits all, nope. but. no, nope. Yeah. And I, I love those types of cases too. Uh, and yeah, I've, I've run into them as well in other areas, uh, in rheumatology actually. Um, and yeah, um, to be able to do that deep dive and, and understand sort of those outliers, I think is, yeah, where a lot of, uh, important knowledge is going to come from so yeah i, I uh yeah I, I i i really enjoy <laughs> some of these areas renee i i just um and 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 it's it's fascinating just hearing you uh hearing you talk about them as with myself not being a scientist uh but but hearing you know um, from someone like someone like you and this way of looking at it so now this is this is awesome um what else is happening, Renee? Anything we should know about for, you know, as we get close to 2023 here, uh, things happening with Inside Tracker that I, I have not touched on, um, conferences that you're going to be presenting at, um, places that we can listen to you, potentially meet you, anything else that I did not touch on, please take the floor and let us know about it. Oh, sure. Um, let's see. Conferences are a great question. And that's something that is on my plate to figure out because I would love to, um, especially now that the world is a little more open, mm-hmm. uh, get out there. I've been at Inside Tracker since last February, so I haven't been here very long. And I've been pretty heads down um, trying to learn what I can about everything. But I would say I'm, you know, I'm pretty ready to. Um, start getting out there and going to some of these longevity conferences and in particular really really interested in in fitness trackers um Mm -hmm. or just trackers in general because you know how much time do we have to enter in data into our like we already spend enough time on the phone so what can be collected if you're comfortable with it what can be passively collected and how can we use that information i would say that's going to be a big focus for the science and AI team in in 2023 is um, figuring out how we can use passively collected data from trackers um, 
Okay. thinking, um, I'm going to call it like the year of statistics, the year of statistical error. Um, I am really interested in, you know, when we do have a change in a biomarker, how do we know that it is meaningful, right? Yep. Like get really rigorous about that. Um, I was even just looking at my bloods from Mass General and, you know, I'm like, where are the error bars? <laughs> like, <laughs> I, I, where, are the, where are the error bars on this graph? Um, so, you know, thinking a lot about that, but the other thing too, is, is thinking a lot about our data assets, something that's really important to me and a lot of other folks at Inside Tracker is, um, what are the biases in our data set? What are, there are biases in every single data set. And there's other like really beautiful data sets out there, like NHANES and UK Biobank that we can also gather, like health, you know, blood-based DNA-based information from healthy individuals and, sometimes less healthy individuals. And how, what are the biases? Because is everybody white? Is everybody rich? Is, you know, everybody male? Um, you know, how do we make sure that we can't always fix the biases, but the first step is being aware of them. And that's, of course, really important, especially when you're doing data-driven learning. So yep. I think we're going to, you know, kind of take a hard look at um, at that moving forward, just to be able to characterize what we have. Um, I think we're really interested in understanding um, how race is used in medicine appropriately, uh, but mostly inappropriately. Um, but, you know, also figuring out better ways to engage with our users. Like, how do we give back information to them in a way that's consumable and engaging and mm-hmm. makes them you know, feel good about the progress that they made in between blood draws or with their tracker over time. And, and so those, you know, those for our, for our team are, are definitely up there. Um, You can look forward to seeing uh, work on women's health, um, which is a big area, Um, adding new, adding new biomarkers, adding new physiomarkers, um, of course. So those would be in more of the immediate immediate term and definitely um, more work on the genomic side because we, we are, we're able to add DNA. And so um, actually, I don't want to tease that one too much, but I, I'm super excited about the application of different methodologies like Mendelian randomization that, that mm-hmm. our genomics team has worked on. Um, and I think there's a lot that we'll be able to add there. So um, I'm Very pretty psyched cool. about the, the year ahead, uh, how people can reach me. I am not that I can always be, I can be found somewhere. I think we'll see if Twitter dies. Um, but <laughs> fascinating conversation for another day. Um, but you know, I'm on Twitter as Renee Dehan. I'm on LinkedIn. Um, and I love to chat with people, you know, um, so you can reach out there awesome. certainly by email as well. Awesome. Yeah, we will put your uh, uh, your socials in the bio of the show uh, when it goes live. And um, yeah, I mean, it's it's really an awesome uh, set of programs, Renee, that, that you have in front of you. And I I, yeah, I think that we have future episodes to do here uh, as as these different uh, modules evolve, and it's just uh, you know rooting you on. Um, as as inside tracker continues to grow and um and moves forward with its mission so um really great stuff i you know for everybody again that's going to be listening to 
this episode of our show uh, across the various podcast networks or watching on the YouTube channel. Uh, you've been listening to Dr. Renee Dehan, Vice President, Science and Artificial Intelligence at Inside Tracker, doing really amazing things to create evidence-based, actionable solutions for uh, folks uh, to improve their health and wellness. Um, Renee, I want to thank you for taking the time out of your schedule to come talk to us and educate us on these themes. Obviously, thank you for everything that you're doing there to, to move the science forward. And, and as we like to say on our show, you know, thanks for helping to create a better tomorrow for people via what you're doing. Really great story. Absolutely my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me.